PA Books is a production of PCN, a nonprofit television network. Listeners like you make our programming possible. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. on PA Books, James McIntyre, author of A Most Gallant Resistance. James McIntyre is the author of A Most Gallant Resistance, the Delaware River Campaign, September to November of 1777. They say in the book that the work proceeds from the premise that the fighting on the Delaware has been grossly underappreciated by historians of the War of Independence. Why do you think it's been underappreciated? Simply put, because it's a footnote. It's usually at the tail end of any campaign history of 1777, if it's mentioned at all. And looking at the campaign itself, um, more troops are dedicated to this campaign, and there are more losses in the campaign itself to open up the river than really had taken place up till that point in the Philadelphia area. I mean, they're drawing down reinforcements from New York at the very tail end to help open up the river. Um, as I mentioned in the book, the British lose two uh, naval assets, one of them a ship of the line. So basically the equivalent of a battleship, the largest naval vessel the British lose to the Americans during the war. So there, there's a lot that's going on. And, and due to that, it really stymies any kind of subsequent British efforts through the tail, through the autumn of 1777 until winter quarters. Now you say in the book, you mentioned uh, Sir Julian Corbett, and you say that the, the contest fits more with Sir Julian Corbett's concept of control of the sea, or in this case, maritime lines of communication. How does his theory fit with uh, your analysis of this campaign? Okay, well, Corbett, um, and, and again, it's, it's really hard to talk about Corbett without talking about uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan, the American who, because Mahan wrote first and, and sort of set the, the agenda. Uh, and for Mahan, control of sea lines of communication was about fighting a major engagement to drive the opponent's fleet from the seas. Um, Corbett looks at this and says, well, maritime operations really support what your army is going to do on land. You know, you, you control the sea lines of communication to be able to have your army move and, and take the opponent's towns or deprive them of some resources, whatever the objective may be. Um, and and the, Philadelphia, the, the Delaware River campaign in particular to me is a fine example of this. To, be, to remain in Philadelphia, uh, and if I may backtrack, you know, Howe, of course, lands in late August at Head of Elk in Maryland and moves up, fights the battles at Brandywine uh, and, and then moves into the city with Cornwallis leading British troops in the Philadelphia on September 26th. But to maintain the control of that city, to, to hold Philadelphia, they need to open the Delaware River to get troops and supplies and, and materiel into the Philadelphia itself, since Washington realizes with this situation that if he throws a cordon around Philadelphia to prevent the farmers and 
tradesmen in the interior from trading with the city, he can essentially starve the British out. Now, you also talk about how this campaign is a case study of what we today we would call joint operations. What do you learn about joint operations from looking back at this campaign in the 1700s? That uh, the, the basic ideas are there. Um, down to very specific details. In other words, when British troops would be ferried across the Delaware River or in the case of the attack on Fort Mercer, when Hessians are taken from Philadelphia um, over to the Cooper's Landing, which is modern Camden, they go on these long boats, but once they're in the boat, they're under the command of a British officer, naval officer. So this idea of the services working together and when they're in the medium, if you will, of the other service, in that instance, the Navy, than a naval officer commands. And so, so they've really figured out a lot of this stuff um, that comes up again in later conflicts and, and sort of at times has to be relearned, if you will. Now you talk about how the, the British had, had put a lot more effort into thinking about how the Army and Navy coordinated with each other. Uh, can I talk a little bit about that background? Absolutely. So, um, and actually one of the, the great en enigmas of the 18th century, uh, this, this gentleman, Thomas Moore Molyneux, who served in the British Army during the 1730s, 1740s, and then retired and um, noted during the Seven Years' War how when the British are launching raids against French controlled islands in the channel in Europe, that they've really don't have, they've forgotten how to do these sort of things. And so he writes a book called Conjunct Expeditions. Um, that's the short title. And, and that's how the way most people know it. At any rate, he talks about, you know, the, sets out basically these same things and is one of the first people to set them down in writing. Um, Consequently, though, it, again, when you're doing intellectual history, it's always very hard to prove causality, right? Like, do we know that any of the officers involved with the British descent on Havana read Molyneux's book? Not for sure, but it's a very, it, it, it shows all the traits of what he's talking about in the book. Um, you know, there's, there's, again, jointness at Havana. Um, there's also this idea of jointness at um, the taking of Quebec in September 1759. And William Howe was present there. In fact, he led the advance guard off the British landing craft to seize the, the heights on the way to the Plains of Abraham. So he's definitely participating in operations that are informed by this thinking. And so again, um, you have these commanders who have experienced this and are now going on and serving in the Delaware River campaign or overseeing it. So let's talk about the defenses of Philadelphia. When, when did planning to defend this port towns begin? Okay, there, so there's ideas going back to the end of the Seven Years' War really because Philadelphia was at that time uh, the largest, most populous city in the colonies and the port was a, an, a huge economic generator. Um, but the problem throughout was the, the Quaker leadership because of their pacifism. They don't want to invest in, in military defenses in anything military, really. Uh, but once 
you know, there's this internal revolution in Pennsylvania and specifically Philadelphia that coincides with the revolutionary movement. And as the party that that's going to support the protest against British policy becomes ascendant, there there's really efforts. And so the real actual practice or practicality of this starts in 1775. Um, they start talking about, you know, getting together these defenses of some kind. There's a, a Supreme Executive Committee and a Council of Safety in Philadelphia that, that ask for designs for river defenses. And that's where they come up with the Chevaux de Free, eventually uh, a, a gentleman by the name of Robert Smith. And I emphasize that because Benjamin Franklin is often credited with these. Um, he did not actually come up with the design. He did give them the name. Um, at any rate, there are these sunken obstacles that by fall of 1775, they're constructing um, in Gloucester, New Jersey and towing out into the river and sinking. Uh, and the basic idea is it's, it's a large wooden box um, that would hold 20 to 30 tons of stone when filled and then would be lowered to the bottom of the river. Attached to this box would be poles, the length of telephone poles that were the ends of which were sheathed in iron tips. These iron tips would be about six feet below the water line. So as a ship coming up the river, I, I like to make the analogy that it's, it, it's the same principle as if someone tries to get out of a parking garage without paying the fee. Um, these spikes would come up and, and hull the ship. And so they, these were custom built to fit in certain areas of the river. In other words, you know, they, they took soundings of the depth and then would construct the box and the, and the um, poles accordingly. Obviously, a great deal of effort goes into this. And there are uh, three rows of these all told. And then eventually uh, they realize as well that, okay, so we have this obstruction, but the British could remove them. And so they construct these forts at different intervals to defend the uh, underwater obstructions. And so uh, in New, on the New Jersey side, across from Chester, Pennsylvania, you have Billingsport. And then further north uh, on what was then Mud Island, you have the fort at Mud Island, which eventually becomes Fort Mifflin. And across the river at Red Bank, New Jersey, you have Red Bank Fort, which becomes Fort Mercer. And finally, um, the Pennsylvanians build what they call, or what the British call the Mosquito Fleet. Um, gunboats, guard boats, fire, fire rafts. The largest, the largest vessel is the frigate Delaware, which is captured early on in the contest for control of the river. Um, so it's this interlocking, I like to call it an interlocking defense in depth, where the British might get through to the city, but it's, it's gonna take them a long time to do it. And it's going to be very costly for them to do it. And that's what ends up being the case. Now, we, we tend to think of a country as having a, a national navy. Uh, but at this time, there was, there was a continental navy, but there was also the Pennsylvania Navy. Uh, when was the Pennsylvania Navy established and what was its purpose? Okay, so the Pennsylvania Navy is also established in 1775. Uh, there's a Commodore Reed early on, but then John Hazelwood succeeds him. 
and its purpose was really to uh, help patrol and guard the Delaware River obstructions. Um, it, it sometimes assists and sometimes is assisted by the Continental Navy, but really its job is much more local. Like the Continental Navy would go out and um, try to interdict British shipping, mainly acting as, as something of privateers, whereas the Pennsylvania State Navy was really sort of local defense. And some of the some of the boats that they operated were galleys, which it seems to harken back to ancient Greece and Rome. Uh, if we looked at one of these galleys, what would we see? We would see a, a long boat, uh, fairly shallow draft, powered by oarsmen, um, often with one gun in, mounted in the bow um, and a couple swivel guns. So, so very small sort of anti-personnel weapons mounted on the sides, uh, a tarp over the oarsmen, um, sometimes a sail as well, but uh, mainly powered by oarsmen. Um, and then smaller than those would be guard boats as well. And, but the advantage of these that again is often overlooked um, by both sides and by later historians is if, if you look at the Delaware River area, there's all these creeks and, and subsidiaries that branch off. And so what these vessels could do would be engage a British vessel like a frigate and then if the, you know, when they get in trouble, these guard boats and galleys can just run up a river and the British can't follow them because the draft is, unless they, you know, want to run the risk of possibly grounding. Now, they, they also had fire rafts. How would they have used those? Okay. Um, the, the basic idea was they were in chains. Um, and so they would be, and, and a chain it would be about four fire rafts linked together. And so they, these would be towed out into the river um, by one of the galleys or a larger vessel. And then there would be crews that would, skeleton crews that would stay on the fire raft as the current took it down. And, and this is really dangerous work and it's very delicate work in that they, the, the rafts contained um, all sorts of combustibles and then explosives. And so the idea was to start a fire on the raft that eventually will spread to the powder and what have you. And the idea that is that the raft should explode when it gets very close to the British vessels, thus hurling bits of, of burning wood and, and debris onto the British ship, hopefully caught it, causing subsidiary fires. Um, Often in the Delaware River campaign, the crews are inexperienced. Um, this is also really terrifying work. If you get it wrong, you're dead, right? Because you're stuck on a burning ship that's going to explode. Um, so they would often ignite the combustibles prematurely and abandon. And then the British see this burning uh, raft coming towards their ship and launch the boats, which would push it out of the way to either side of the river. So once the Pennsylvania Navy was established and these defenses were in place, so when was the first encounter with British naval forces? Uh, that was actually May of 76. And this frigate uh, HMS Roebuck under Captain Andrew Sir Snape Hammond was patrolling in the Delaware Bay. Um, and 
it and several other British vessels moved into the bay to replenish their fresh water casks. Uh, there's an alarm given because, an, again, another aspect of this defense network uh, from, from Luz down in, in Delaware up to Philadelphia, they had a series of alarm guns. It's very, so like a one pound cannon. It's not going to do any damage to anything, um, but it will make a lot of noise. And so as they hear the guns starting in Delaware, making their way up the coast, it alerts the Pennsylvania, the vessels of the Pennsylvania Navy to get their crews on board and come down for this alarm. It also in, informs the garrisons of the forts. Now I should mention, um, Manning the, the Pennsylvania Navy vessels was a perennial problem throughout this time. Likewise, the forts often have few, if any, people garrisoning them. Uh, it's, it's a major problem. And oftentimes when, say in 1776, just before Trenton and Princeton, you know, when the Continental Army is in the area and they need reinforcements, they'll pull whatever troops they can out of those forts to reinforce the main field army. Um, it's not until August, really, really October of 1777 that Washington puts together how significant the, a role the forts could play. Um, at any rate, getting back to the question, um, so May 1776, these British vessels come up the Delaware River um, and the guard boats and, and mainly the guard boats of the Pennsylvania Navy come down and engage them. Um, however, they start their cannonade really about a mile or better distance. So many of their, many of their shots fall short. And the problem then becomes that these ships don't really have a, whole, a lot, large supply of ammunition. So they have to turn back. Um, they come down the next day, there's a longer cannon duel with the British. Um, and, and it's really interesting because later on, when the British return to the Delaware River, many of these captains and, and commanders just, you know, laugh and, and snuff their noses at the Pennsylvania Navy. Hammond is the one saying, I don't discount them because we have really good documentation that for a few days after this second engagement, the carpenters on the Roebuck are busy repairing significant damage that they inflicted. They're pulling cannonballs out of the side and, and patching the holes so she's seaworthy again. Now, uh, how did the Pennsylvania Navy uh, respond to this? Did they think that they had done a good job? Uh, there's controversy. On one hand, the, the naval vessels, yes, have some, have some definite, the crews and the captains, um, they're quite aware the first day that, okay, yeah, we, we really didn't do so well. We, we kind of fired prematurely. And again, it's their really first engagement. And think about it. You're going up in a vessel with a crew of, you know, maybe 10, maybe 15 um, against a British frigate that one broadside would eradicate all of them <laughs> if, they, if they got their aim correct. Um, so there's, there's anxiety, uh, but when they come back the next day, they give a very good account of themselves and they're justifiably um, proud of the work they've done. Uh, there's, there's some controversy in the city, but generally the civic leaders uh, after the second day's engagement are 
quite happy with the, the performance of the fleet as well. Um, and there'll be, there'll be controversy around the role of the Pennsylvania Navy throughout the, the 77 portion of the campaign as well. So. so once the British take control of Philadelphia, uh, is at this point, how much control do the Continental Forces have of these forts? Okay. Um, not much. There's, um, in fact, the way, and again, another factor in writing the book was to point out just the significance of their existence. Um, the Howe brothers, so, Sir, you know, Sir William is in charge of the land forces and his brother, uh, Rich, Sir Admiral Sir Richard Howe is in charge of the naval aspect. And, and this was done consciously on the part of the, the British government, hoping to achieve this level of jointness because they, they recognized as well that a, a big part of this is, will your commanders get along? Will your commanders of the separate forces work well together? Um, and the Howe brothers do. At any rate, um, William realizes that, yeah, he needs to open up this, these sea lines of communication um, to, to maintain his presence in the city. Richard is starting to work at this. And the, William Howe sends a task force down from Philadelphia to Chester, and they essentially cross the Delaware into New Jersey. Um, there's about 200 troops in Billingsport against a British force of 1,500. And so they, they quickly decided that discretion was the better part of valor, spiked the guns and abandoned the works. Um, now, uh, the co commander of the British force, Colonel Sterling, if he had moved north on Red Bank, he would have been able to take Fort Mercer as well because there were absolutely no troops there. So it's not really considered significant. Um, but the, this whole operation goes off on October 1st. Washington, seeing troops leaving Philadelphia, this decides him on initiating the plan he'd already devised of launching a strike at Germantown. Um, so this leads to the Battle of Germantown on October 4th, uh, where the Americans do well initially. I mean, um, I tend to follow the, the other historians who've really dug into this, like Michael Harris. And, you know, Washington's plan is, is it extremely complex for the force he's working with. At any rate, uh, it doesn't do too badly. Um, but when the Americans break off and the British are still in control of Philadelphia, it becomes very clear to both sides that the rivers are crucial. And that's when they start moving more troops into both Fort Mercer and Fort Mifflin. Now, one of the army commanders uh, in, in these forts was Samuel Smith. Who is he? Okay, so uh, Lieutenant Colonel Samuel Smith is a Maryland native. Um, he starts working for his father's merchant interests and so sails across to Europe a few times, actually um, is shipwrecked briefly. And, and this is all in his you know, late teens, early 20s. Um, he joins the Maryland line early on in its existence and distinguishes himself in several engagements. Um, and, and for this, he is, you know, given the command of the garrison at Fort Mifflin. 
And so he's in his he's in his mid twenties. He will go on actually to become um, a governor of Maryland. He will serve in the War of eighteen twelve as well in the defense against the British landings there. Um, so so he goes on to a long political and military career. Uh, at this point, though, he's he's a, a fairly newly minted officer, and this is his first independent command. And in the end, it's it's really a delaying action. There's not going to be a victory at Fort Mercer or at Fort Mifflin. I'm sorry. So as as the British are trying to uh, gain command of the river, uh, the first operation goes against Fort Mercer. And how does that unfold? What is their plan? The plan is to send a, a force across the Delaware River into New Jersey, uh, would land in, in what is now Camden, and then march down and attack the fort uh, by storm, um, which really shows, uh, in my opinion, poor intelligence gathering on the part of the British because they don't really understand the works they're dealing with. Um, at any rate, so uh, Hessian Colonel Count Carl Emil von Donop volunteers to lead the expedition and lead a Hessian contingent instead of a British one. Donup's motive was that he had been in overall command of the area in and around Trenton the previous year when during the Trenton surprise. Um, and, and so the Hessians tended to feel dishonored by this, um, by being caught unawares or seemingly unawares by a you know army of amateurs in their opinion and so he wants to restore hessian honor um, by leading this assault to his credit he does ask uh william howe for heavier artillery for siege guns and howe turns down the request um stating that if he you know if he insists then the british will do it themselves um fun there are some other problems uh, von Donop underestimates the Americans as well and, and makes some fairly amateurish mistakes. As he doesn't bring any scaling ladders to get into the fort itself, nor does he include any additional um, wagons to, to transport any wounded that they might incur. Um, so it, they almost assume that this is going to be a walkthrough. Um, and the overall plan was for the... British and for the British ships in the Delaware to move up and bombard both forts and create a dis, uh, something of a distraction. And then the Hessians would launch their assault on Fort Mercer. And this was all to go down on October 23rd. Um, from Donup crosses on the 21st, he bivouacs in Haddonfield, New Jersey. Um, and then the following day, the 22nd moves on Fort Mercer and, so, and, and determines to attack the fort a, a day early. Um, however, he arrives at Fort Mercer at noon and summons the fort to surrender. Uh, they refuse. At that point, he orders his troops to prepare uh, fascines, which are these bundles of, of sticks that they'll use to throw in the ditch to, around that surrounds Fort Mercer to get across it more easily and, and climb the wall. So he wastes much of the afternoon. Meanwhile, on the American side, uh, Washington had thrown in a garrison by then, 
Uh, it's composed of Rhode Island troops under the overall command of Colonel Christopher Green, who is a, a cousin of Nathaniel Green. He had also sent uh, a French engineer along, um, again, to survey the works and determine, you know, if any modifications needed to be made. And uh, this was Duplessis. And he first, uh, uh, as he does his survey of the works, determines that they're too large for the garrison. And so they actually cordon off a section and reduce the size of the fort by about a third. Um, the Hessians don't know this. And so they actually launch um, three attacks on the fort simultaneously, though one of them goes off early. The, the attack that's going to come in from the north jumps off early, and that's the portion of the fort that had been abandoned. So they, they get up and over the outer wall, if you were what is now the outer wall, and um, get into this abandoned interior and then start moving across. And as they move across this open area to storm the inner wall, um, much of the garrison deploys there and just hammers them with fire. Um, this was a, an attack that Von Donop himself was leading. He is wounded. Um, his men are driven back, but it also gives the garrison time to redeploy and meet the other assault. End result is that well over 300 Hessians are killed or wounded, including the commander. Um, and they are sent back. Um, and again, it's, you know, they're, they're uh, tying what wounded they can recover onto artillery caissons because they have no other transport to get them. Um, you know, if you if you are capable of walking and you're wounded, you have to walk, basically. So it's on the for the Hessians, it's really a huge defeat, a huge embarrassment for the Americans. And uh, I make the case that this is a really important victory because up to this point, the Philadelphia campaign is very much overshadowed by events to the north. And Washington hasn't been doing so well. Um you know, he's lost at Brandywine. There's there's this non-starter, if you will, at the, the Battle of the Clouds. Uh, Wayne is sur surprised at Paoli. There's Germantown, which again, Washington uh, fails in his objective. Meanwhile, you've got um, Gates, really Arnold and Morgan, you know, capturing a British army in, in New York. Um, and so Washington's reputation is in trouble. Um, and it's, it's also clear to Congress, you know, that one of the things I mentioned, uh, their committee on foreign relations, they have, because they're meeting in York in Pennsylvania, they know the details of Red Bank much more, much more quickly than they know the details of Burgoyne's surrender at Saratoga. So there's, it's, it's really kind of ironic. There's this very detailed report of the, the Hessians being driven back. And then the next day, um, you know, when the fighting at Fort at Red Bank starts, right, the ships in the in the river hear the firing and they think, oh, we're going early. So the ships move in close and start firing on Fort Mercer, Mercer and Fort Mifflin. Um, they're too far away from Fort Mercer to really do anything. 
However, this is when HMS Augusta gets stuck on a sandbar. Um, they try to refloat it, but it doesn't go so well. And so she's stuck through the night. The next day, the gunners at Fort Mifflin realize the ship is, is grounded. And so they concentrate fire on it. Um, and around, around 10 o'clock, um, a fire breaks out that quickly spreads to the main powder magazine and the Augusta explodes. The HMS Merlin, another British vessel that was coming to Augusta's aid, catches fire and grounds. Um, and so the British actually burn the, the Merlin to prevent it fall, to prevent it from falling into American hands. So they lose, there's this repulse the one day and then the next day there's the loss of Augusta and Merlin. And there's a very detailed report in the correspondence that goes to France of all this. And then this mention, oh, and, and something big happened in New York, more details later. <laughs> um, but, but what to me was very telling they, they actually included this end of the paragraph on uh, the fighting in the Delaware. Be sure to use this information to our advantage to impress our allies and depress the spirits of our enemies. So, so make a big deal out of this in the news media in Europe. So uh, they, they were quite aware of the, the value of this. We'll be back in a moment with the PA Books podcast. Enjoying this podcast? Please support PCN with a donation at PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. Now, as we talked about, one of the themes of the book is this relationship between the Army and the Navy. So how did the land forces at Fort Mercer, who were defending the fort, uh, collaborate with the Pennsylvania Navy during this period? Okay. And yeah, that again, there's there's a lot going on at Fort Mercer and through this campaign, um, which which made it a very very rich study. But they actually do raise signal flags, and some of these um, galleys come in, and and they're very good Hessian accounts, and and quite a few of them. I actually didn't include everything I have in the book, um, mentioning that these these vessels were coming in and lending artillery support. Uh, firing on the Hessian columns as they're moving to attack Fort Mercer. And so they play a role in that defense. Um, in addition, they routinely went down and, and lent what aid they could um, to Fort Mifflin and would, would attempt to you know, bring, add their own fire, such as it was, on the British ships in the Delaware. Um, as far as the service relations went um there there is a lot of tension between colonel smith and commodore hazelwood um samuel smith is was often accusing the pennsylvania navy of not doing as much as it could to aid fort mifflin um and in fact when washington sends more troops into new jersey under brigadier james mitchell varnum one of the instructions he gives him is basically, you know, see what you can do to smooth this out. <laughs> you know, we, we need to make these forces work together. Um, use your best judgment and, and act accordingly to kind of reduce this controversy between the commanders. Um, my read of it is the Pennsylvania Navy, given the nature of those vessels, really couldn't 
do a lot, especially as the siege of Fort Mifflin continues into November, because the, the river is going to get choppy. And, and these are shallow draft vessels. They're, there's a great deal of danger of them flooding. And so they can't really fight on a daily basis. Um, at the same time, I think Smith, you know, once is as a young gentleman on his way up, was concerned with his honor and didn't want to fail and have this blemish. Um, and again, is under incredible stress. Uh, so I think to, you know, in retrospect, it's, this was going to be a delaying action. Um, and, and really that's what the powers that be, what Washington and the Congress talk about a great deal. If we can hold the forts until the river freezes, that would constitute a victory. Not if we can drive the British back down the river, but if we can just maintain. So it's going to be a delaying action at best. And to, to the point you were making before about Washington trying to smooth things over between Smith and Hazelwood, you quote him as saying, I beg you of all things not to suffer any jealousies between the land and sea service to, to take place. Consider that your mutual security depends upon acting perfectly in concert. So Washington seemed to have a good concept of jointness that he was trying to instill in his subordinates. Yes, absolutely. He, he has, um, he comes around somewhat late to an appreciation of what this defensive network can do. But once he, he once he does, I, I argue that he gives, as, he gives the forts as much support as he can. Uh, you know, he's in a real bind because he can't really throw everything into the forts because then he'll have no field army should the British decide to make a foray out of Philadelphia. Um, so he's kind of got to balance these different obligations. But he's also writing to Gates in New York, okay, now that the British have surrendered, can you know, he had Washington had dutifully reinforced Gates throughout the summer and early fall, and now he's sort of trying to call the units back so that he can utilize them and and expand his forces. I mean, once once he gets Morgan's riflemen, he sends them right over to Varnum in New Jersey. Um, and they do actually take part in a skirmish towards the very end of things. At any rate, no, he does. He gains a real appreciation of the importance of the command working well together to achieve that level of jointness. So once the British fail at Fort Mercer, they don't give up. Uh, they, they turn their attention then to Fort Mifflin. Uh, what is their plan for that fort? Um, basically to pummel it into dust. Uh, they, they focus on the construction of land batteries on the Pennsylvania side. Um, and again, this is a, an important part of, of local mythology that I, I track down and debunk in the book. Um, and, and my background and what started the project, my first job ever getting paid to do history was working as a docent at Fort Mifflin. Um, and so that sparked the interest. But one of the things we would often say was uh, the British engineer, John Montresor, who laid out the fort and, and quote unquote built Fort Mifflin, ended up supervising the, the construction of the batteries that, that destroyed it. Um, that's actually not true. John Montresor was called down to Philadelphia in 1764. He surveyed the Delaware River banks and, and his job was to, to devise a defensive plan for Philadelphia, maritime defenses for the city. 
And but the plan he submitted was rejected by the governor, then Governor John Penn, due to the expense it would incur. So Montresor really didn't have anything to do with the construction of Fort Mifflin itself. Um, He does, though, supervise the construction of these Royal Artillery batteries on the Pennsylvania side of the river. And so the idea is to take the fort under fire from the landward side in Pennsylvania and also concentrate as much of the Royal Navy's firepower, as many ships as they can get up to just below this this upper tier of Chevaux de Frey and fire on the fort and, and basically blast it to the point where they can land troops on it and, and take the island. Um, now, much of this requires the construction of these batteries, which begins real just after the repulse at Fort Mercer. So late October, um, but again, you know, in the Philadelphia area, late October, early November, the weather shifts, uh, the tides in the river, the, the, as I mentioned earlier, it becomes more choppy. Uh, the weather is bad and, and that becomes, there's a lot of rain, there's a lot of wind. And so dig, you know, they're digging entrenchments and they often flood. This slows down the entire process of um, building these firing positions because they have to make sure that the deck they're going to place the cannon on is secure or they're, they're going to have a lot of problems, right, when they start to bombard the fort. Um, everything isn't really in position until mid-November. And then the British unleash... Um, a pulverizing bombardment of the fort. The, the, the count of guns that I tend to see, tended to see the most, 350 guns between the ships, the Royal Navy ships in the river and the firing positions on land. Um, so it's basically the largest cannonade in North America prior to Gettysburg, all concentrated on a fort that had one stone wall facing downriver, and the rest was mostly wooden palisades. So you can imagine the damage that they exacted on this. Um, And in fact, it's that night, Smith by then had been wounded and evacuated. Um, They actually did a call at Fort Mercer for for volunteers and for someone to assume Smith's command over the fort and Major Simeon Thayer of the Rhode Island Regiment volunteered. And so he's actually the last commander. Um, and he's the last one out, if you will. Uh, but that night, they, they um, and, and again, they abandon what's left of the works. They set fire to whatever was still, that they couldn't, whatever they couldn't take that the British might find useful. Um, you know, they, they leave, uh, a lot of, of their dead behind because there simply isn't the ability to, to evacuate them. Um, and they get to, you know, take the remainder of the garrison across to New Jersey. Now, uh, what was the role of the Pennsylvania Navy in this fight? The, the Navy will come down again when it can and lay, lend whatever fire support they can to the fort. In other words, these small ships will come down and really stay just above the Chevaux de Frey and fire on the Royal Navy vessels. Um, 
expend whatever ammunition is in their racks and then withdraw. So again, there are a lot of limitations on what they can do, um, but they repeatedly play a role in the defense of the fort. Um, whenever they can, tides permitting and weather conditions permitting, they will come down and fire. Another big problem by this point is with the, with the conditions in the fleet being what they are, there's a great deal of desertion. There are in fact a couple of these small vessels that go over to the British side. Okay, um, their their crews just you know abandon the the Americans and, and go over to the British, um, and so they're actually pull. They've they've got some Continental Navy ships that are further up the Delaware uh, that were under construction, and so the the crews that were there, they they try and get drafts of them to fill out the crews of the Pennsylvania Navy vessels and so forth. So um, it's it's becoming more and more difficult for both the land and, and maritime forces to defend the forts. They say in the book that uh, the tension between Smith and Hazelwood contributed to the loss of Fort Mifflin. How so? Well, again, there's, um, they, Smith, honestly, spends a lot of time telling Washington about how Hazelwood is not supporting him. Um, and, and, sort of blaming Hazelwood for things that aren't going right, um, as opposed to talking directly to Hazelwood and trying to plan, what can we do? You know, what can we do? And, and the part I found honestly kind of surprising in that was, as I mentioned earlier, Smith was an experienced mariner himself. The, the, he was no stranger to the difficulties Hazelwood would have been encountering in the river between the season and the changes in the river itself due to the season and so forth. Um, I think they also just, so this controversy between the two prevented them from working effectively together. And so, you know, could they have held on to the fort longer? Um, that's difficult. That's really difficult to say one way or the other, obviously. Um, but I, I don't I don't think it aided in the defense when the commander of the land forces isn't talking to the commander of the maritime forces directly. Instead, he's going through Washington, who then has to go, you know, Washington will write directly to Hazelwood. Um, and, and much of the correspondence between Washington and Hazelwood is trying to smooth over like, look. Don't take him too seriously. I know you're doing the best that you can. Keep up your good. You know, Washington is really sort of, if there's anything more you can do, like he very much support is supportive of what Hazelwood is doing. And at the same time, we'll say, but if there's anything, any more assistance you can lend to these forts, please do. So he really kind of takes on the role of coordinator of these defenses. So this defense system was a system and with different forts supporting each other in the Navy as well. So once one fort falls, such as Fort Mifflin, how does that affect the entire system of defense? Right. So once um, at that northern end, if you will, Fort Mercer's role is really as a conduit for troops and supplies to get to Fort Mifflin. So when Fort Mifflin falls, there's really no further reason for Fort Mercer to be garrisoned. Um, it, it's kind of hanging, it's a post hanging out there 
on the extreme flank of the Americans that would be a very tempting target for the British. So, you know, and again, it would be a, another loss for the Americans if the British take it. And so instead, once Fort Mifflin falls, um, the, the determination is made to abandon Fort Mercer, which is uh, destroyed, it's blown up, and the garrison retreats eventually back to White Marsh, where the main Continental Army was camped at the time. So the, these two forts are not that far from Philadelphia. Did, were people able to watch some of these battles taking place? Absolutely. Um, there's uh, Robert Morton. There's a number of, of different diaries from civilians in the city, and they talk about, you know, the, the noise of the cannonade. Um, there's also a letter from Thomas Paine to Benjamin Franklin uh, talking about, you know, the, the noise and the plume of smoke from the Augusta when she blew up. Um, so people throughout the area were watching this. They were watching it from Philadelphia, uh, you know, and and at le and definitely hearing the sounds of the guns, certainly. Now, we've talked about some of the, the bigger battles that, that were part of this campaign, but throughout this period, the Pennsylvania Navy was engaged, engaged in raids and harassment uh, and you've mentioned some of those uh, throughout the book. Can you just kind of give us a sense of what, the, what that type of harassment work would have been like? Yes. So um, what they do is they interdict, um, well, during the, the campaign in Pennsylvania in 1777, and once Philadelphia has fallen, uh, they try to prevent loyalists from selling their wares to the British further down the Delaware. Um, so they're they're you know interrupting this clandestine economy that grows up. Um, they also uh, you know would when when vessels were would sail out into the river to again try and sell victuals to the Royal Navy in in seventy five and seventy six mainly seventy six honestly they would try and interrupt that trade as well and so they would go down and you know board a a merchant small merchant vessel coming out of, say, Christiana Creek headed for one of these Royal Navy ships. And so where do you think you're going with all that food we see in your hold um, and so forth and, and kind of stop that trade, um, sometimes confiscating the goods, especially by 77, they're confiscating the merchandise and sending it off to Washington's army. So while, while all, these, uh, all this campaign was unfolding, what was the Continental Navy doing? Well, the Continental Navy um, is very small, and there's, again, the ships under construction further north of Philadelphia on the Delaware, um, and again, there's, there's a back and forth between Washington as whether or not they should sink, the, sink or burn the hulls under construction. Eventually, they just sink them in creeks, um, and the British never, never find the, the ships themselves. The Continental Navy, such as it is, would foray out of ports, Boston, Philadelphia, um, any unoccupied American port, and really uh, do a few things. One, try and interdict British supply. Um, again, oftentimes there are merchant vessels coming across singly um, or in small groups, but they're, they're not convoyed. They're not protected by British warships. And so... 
anything that we can anything that we can capture along those lines is is kind of a double win right it's it's more weapons and ammunition for the continental army and it deprives the british army of those same quantities um so that's what they're doing they're also going to the caribbean to trade uh american goods for i mean one of the main ports for this obviously is saint eustatius the dutch island where they're they're uh, involved in trade to get materiel to the Continental Army. Now, once Fort Mifflin falls to the British and Fort Mercer is abandoned, what happens to the Pennsylvania Navy? Um, the, so many of them had clustered on the New Jersey side, north of the Chevaux de Frie, and they, they most make an end run up the Delaware River past Philadelphia. Um, the British see this and start firing on some of them. Um, so, and, and those that don't make it past the city are uh, abandoned and burned on the New Jersey side. So it's pretty much the end of the Pennsylvania Navy as well. So once this campaign is over, is there an effort of the participants to try to shape the narrative of what happened? Um, well, certainly, I, again, one of the things that I found most interesting is that William Howe pens his letter of resignation as commander of British forces in North America the same day as the attack on Fort Mercer. So it seems to me that he's, he's maybe getting the feeling that this has not gone well. Um, but certainly uh, both Howe brothers in their letters back to England describe the loss of the Augusta as due to a fire that broke out on the ship itself. Um, they, in other words, it seems like neither one could fathom the idea that American gunners could actually do that. <laughs> so they, they, you know, they're, they're not good enough. And, and there's actually been a fair amount of controversy over the years among historians. The, the, the main narrative that's emerged in the historiography has been that um, either what the Howe brothers write, which is a piece of wadding from one of the guns on the Augusta blew back onto the ship um, and sparked a fire that spread to the magazine causing the explosion. The American side has been a hot shot, which was a cannonball heated till it's essentially red hot and then fired, um, and, and the idea again is that this red hot iron ball will lodge in the wooden ship and start a fire itself. Um, those who dismiss that idea point to the fact that there was, there was no hot shot furnace, like a specially constructed iron box at Fort Mifflin to be able to make one of these. Um, uh, many other historians point out, and I think rightly, that you, that's nice if you have a hot shot furnace, but really what you need is a hole in the ground and a pair of, a pair of large tongs. That's it. <laughs> so it's, it's really not a complex thing to create. Um, and there's, there's a lot of evidence that that sort of exigency of dig a hole, create a really hot fire, heat this thing, and then just drop it down the tube is done. It's done over here. It's done in Europe. So it's not like this was un, an, an unknown practice. So what do you hope people today take away from uh, understanding this campaign in terms of understanding jointness and maritime operations? Uh, I, I hope that people get 
the idea that this isn't anything new that that um people were considering the fun considering and working out the fundamentals several centuries ago um and and that those same fundamentals are really crucial today that your commanders need the commanders of the different forces need to have a solid and uh cooperative working relationship for it to for things to function well um beyond that i also hope that it, it brings to philadelphians a, a greater appreciation of just how much occurred literally in our backyards well we've been talking about the book a most gallant resistance the delaware river campaign september to november 1777 james mcintyre thank you for joining me thank you listeners like you make pcn programming possible full episodes of pa books as well as other PCN programs are available to stream with the PCN Select app. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support.